So, yesterday, I was sent on what a less charitable person might call a, a punishment errand to Walmart. And when I got there, I noticed something that was rather peculiar and perfectly explainable. At the beginning, in the aisleways, in between the registers and all the loot that was 488, there were voluminous supplies of 6.3-ounce bottles, 187 milliliters, I think, Sutter Home wines for $1.25 apiece. You could get yourself a Pinot Grigio or a White Zinvendel or a Mercato. You get yourself any number of cheap wines there at the beginning of Walmart. And I thought about this and I thought, see, they're making a concession here. They're saying, load up, because that's the only way you're going to be able to bear it in here where we've narrowed the aisles and widened the people, including myself. <laughs> including myself. Did you hear this? See, there's, some, there's something cynical about them placing all that cheap wine right there at the beginning when you walk in. Because they know they have some amount of mercy on you as they're taking all your money, all the cheap things you're going to buy there. That... The days are hard and awfully long, and it's hard to bear up under what we're asked to bear up under sometimes, and the author of Hebrews knows the same. So he has urged us, as we've been looking through this last few weeks, toward a kind of Advent attentiveness. He says we must pay more careful attention to the message we heard so that we do not ignore such a great salvation. He says something Rather magnificent has happened, a dent in the calendar has been affected that is meant to transform all of human life for the rest of forever, at least the way you think about it and hopefully the way you live it. And today, we continue in that as we hear the author of Hebrews saying to fix our thoughts. We who share this heavenly calling, a call from the heavens toward the world to come when heaven and earth shall be one. Fix your thoughts on Jesus, the apostle and high priest, whom we confess. He's telling us this. He's telling us to fix our thoughts on this Jesus so that we can hold on to our courage and the hope of which we boast. So we don't have to merely run to the white Zinfandel for $1.25 a gulp. Flannery O'Connor recently, not recently, she didn't do anything recently, she's been dead for quite some time. (laughs) Sorry. I should say I recently shared a story, a letter that she wrote in 1961, which is just about 50 years ago, almost five minutes ago. And in this story, this letter, a college professor had written to her and said, my class and I have been puzzling over the meaning of your story A good man is hard to find. Some of you have read this story. It's about the misfit and this interchange between him and the grandmother at the end. And he comes up with a rather fanciful interpretation and says, we've come to believe that the the son in the story is actually hallucinating, kind of making all of this up. And he writes and says, can you please shed some light on these things? And, And Flannery writes that 
they couldn't be further from the truth in their interpretation. That if his interpretation was right, I would only have an interest in, I would only be writing about abnormal psychology, and I have no interest in abnormal psychology. She goes on to explain something about the story, and she says this. The meaning of a story should go on expanding for the reader the more he thinks about it. The meaning of a story should go on expanding for the reader the more he thinks about it. And she says other, you know, inflammatory things, including, I don't mean to be obnoxious. I am just in a state of shock, Flannery O'Connor. That's how she responds. If you ever want to sign off on a letter, I'm just in a state of shock. Use it. She won't care. But what she tells us is something that the author of Hebrews is telling us as well. The meaning of a story should go on expanding for the reader the more he thinks about it. What the author here is saying that is something rather substantial has happened. God has been brought to us and we have been brought to God by the priesthood of Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the radiance of God's being. In the past, he spoke through the, spoke through the prophets. But now, in these last days, he has spoken through his son. There's been an authoritative revelation Shout out from the heavens that's not to be ignored, and it has a bearing on everything. And what he's telling people is, if you get yourself in a state where all you're thinking about is immediately what's before your eyes, immediately what you're experiencing, then you're going to grow weary. You're going to lose courage. You're going to start coming up with alternate scenarios of belief. And so he says, you've got to fix your thoughts so that the story of Jesus' replenishment and renovation of the world becomes ever more expanding to fit all the details and contours of your life. He tells us to fix our thoughts on Jesus. Later on, he says, again, to fix our eyes on Jesus. The Apostle Paul tells us to fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, and what is unseen is eternal. There's this theme of learning to fix the thoughts of the mind. Because the author of Hebrews knows that your thoughts and mine are very often just like a bunch of kids at a birthday party at the jump park. Have you ever been to the jump park in Chattanooga, this trampoline park that has a, that I think Erlanger built, there's a partnership between the emergency room and (laughs) Erlanger. What you do is you stand in line, you go there, you pay a lot of money, you sign a release form, then you jump around, and then you break your arm, and then you get immediately towed to the hospital. They have like a jet pack that takes you straight to the emergency room. But when you're there, there's no chance of harnessing any, harnessing any child in any way. Kids are jumping and bouncing and smashing and crashing and throwing balls at each other on the battle ball court. There's no chance of reining anybody in. It's a time for people to just... Lose it, as Eminem would say. (laughs) Go crazy. Sometimes your thoughts do that, don't they? They just scatter, they just shoot out, or they come at you unbidden, and you don't know what to do with them. And so the author of Hebrews would say, look, 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 look. What you've got to do is you have got to push these things back, and you've got to fix your mind. You've got to learn how to have a certain kind of diet in your mind. You've got to have a certain kind of nutrition that your mind takes in, where you give some consideration, some thought to this story that's meant to be ever-expanding, or you're going to lose hold of it. That's part of why you come here. That's part of why we join together on Wednesday for a Christmas Eve service that will only last one hour where we'll rehearse these stories and seeing our faith and, and hear a story that I compose for the congregation. 
These are things we do so that we can consider the faith. You may have seen the movie A Beautiful Mind. It won an Oscar back maybe in 2002-ish. It's the story of John Nash, who was an economics professor, mathematics professor at Princeton. He wound up winning a Pulitzer Prize, a Nobel Prize, sorry, Nobel, not Pulitzer. He won a Nobel Prize, but this very genius, brilliant man turns out to have been living in an altered state, paranoid schizophrenia. And as a result, he saw things and interacted with realities that were not there. There were things in his mind that were so utterly real, they were not real to anyone else, but they were torturous for him. And as he made his way through and as he became a functioning person with this diagnosis, at one point, someone asked him, how do you do it? How do you keep going in this tumultuous state? And he says, it's a diet of the mind. I still see and hear these other voices, he says. But I don't feed them. I've noticed what I feed will grow. What I starve, its power will diminish. And that is exactly what has to happen in our lives. Your thoughts in many ways are like unruly kids at a birthday party at the jump park. They're jumping and crashing and running and they seem unruly. And you've got to say, am I going to feed these unruly things? Or am I going to let them starve and feed my faith that helps me believe this story to consider him, to fix my thoughts on Jesus, the apostle and high priest whom we confess. Because if we can't learn to do this, what will happen very often, one of the best ways, says Screwtape, of, of God, I mean of the devil, sorry, don't mean to get them confused. One of the ways that the devil, he envisions in his book Screwtape Letters, messing with us in our faith is not by bringing things into our mind. He says that Christian patients are always imagining that we're plopping all things, all kinds of things in their heads, all kinds of deleterious thoughts in their heads. But what they don't realize is some of our best work is in keeping things out of their heads, not letting certain things occur to them. And that, in our present moment, is very easy to happen. It becomes more and more plausible to envision your world and your day and your future without a resurrected but formerly wounded king who's ruling over all things and who's making all things new. It's very easy to forget that. It's very easy for that to seem very far-fetched. And so we must fix our thoughts with a diet of the mind to let the story begin expanding more and more as we think about it. So how can we do this? Well, here's the first way. Just, we're just going to talk about two broad ways. One is to think about the sympathy of Jesus. We're told this, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. We're told that for this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way in order that he might become a faithful and merciful High priest in service to God, because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. We are told we have a high priest who is not unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, that he is someone able to deal gently with the ignorant and with those who are going astray. The other day, for the first time in our marriage, I was about to be late. Probably the first time in my life I was going to be late somewhere. Okay. 
I've been on time one time, and I've been late every other time. I was writing to Kathy. We were going to be meeting for dinner with her father, and I was running late. I had been visiting this lady that I've been visiting for 10 years who lives in a nursing home, and I love her very much, and she, she seems to like me, and she talks, and I listen a lot, and it was hard for me to leave. And I wrote Kathy, said, I'm running late, I'm sorry, sometimes it's hard for me to get out of there. And you know what she could have said? Of course you know what she could have said. There's any number of things she could have said, because I'm late all the time. But you know what she did say? She said, I understand. I understand. She said, I understand. See, there's something so inordinately relieving about that when you think, I've disappointed somebody again, and they say, I understand. I'm not judging you. I'm not angry with you. I'm not upset with you. I understand. The author of Hebrews says, part of the priesthood of God, whereby God is brought to us through Jesus, and whereby Jesus brings us to God in representation, is that the one you talk to, the intermediary, the way you get to God is someone who looks at you and he says, not, what's wrong with you? You did what? Again? When you come to him reluctantly and you've confessed the same sin over and over and over again, or you try to be honest and about the jealousy that you're feeling because your best friend got something that you were hoping you would get and you feel simultaneously you're kind of happy for him, but you also hope something bad happens to them, and you feel ashamed and you come to him, And he says, I understand. Now he's going to leave us there. But that's his initial approach. He's able to sympathize. He's able to deal gently with those who are going astray. He is no stranger, as we just sang in Matt Brown's favorite song, to our weakness, to our weakness, no stranger. You might have seen the movie, We Were Soldiers. Mel Gibson plays Lieutenant Colonel Hal Moore, but Moore wrote a book called We Were Soldiers Once and Young. And in it, he says this. This battalion commander in Vietnam, 7th Cavalry Division, he said, in the American Civil War, it was a matter of principle that a good officer rode his horse as little as possible. There were sound reasons for this. If you are riding on a horse and your soldiers are marching, how can you judge how tired they are, how thirsty, how heavy their packs weigh on their shoulders? I applied, he said, the same philosophy in Vietnam where every battalion commander had his own command and control helicopter. Some commanders used their helicopter as their personal mount. I never believed in that. You had to get on the ground with your troops to see and hear what is happening. You had to soak up firsthand information for your instincts to appreciate accurately. Besides, it's easy to be crisp and cool and detached at 1,500 feet. It's too easy to demand the impossible of your troops. It's too easy to make mistakes that are fatal only to those souls so far below in the mud and the blood and the confusion. Do you hear what he's saying as a 
battalion commander. He said, if I stay on my horse, if I stay in my helicopter and I'm not walking with my troops and I'm not with them in the mud and the blood and the confusion, I can maintain an air of coolness and crispness. I can, I can ask them to do what's actually impossible. I could have no idea about their, their thirst or their fear or their hunger or their fatigue or what is actually going on. So I've got to get down in the mud and in the blood and in the confusion with them. The author of Hebrews says that's what Jesus has done. He got down there with us. To our stranger, no weakness. Now this becomes a massive way, if you want to fix your thoughts on Jesus, to think about this, to think you could routinely go to and depend on someone who isn't ever going to roll his eyes at you like some 20-something snarky comedy on Hulu. He doesn't roll his eyes. He knows what it's like. Do you have nightmares ever, kids, grown-ups? You get afraid of the dark. You get, you get hurt because someone didn't invite you to something and they did invite someone else that you know and love. You worry about where the next deal's going to come from, where the next check's going to be. Do you have voices in your head that, drive you crazy to think that you could go to Jesus with these things and him say initially I understand I'm right there with you it's meant to be an invitation for easy and quick and frequent approach to believe that he doesn't weary of you you know it is often the case that if you are going to confide in someone, if you have some shameful thing about yourself, and most of you do, there's something about yourself that you just hate. There's something that when you look back on your life, you feel like, ah, oh, I wish I had done this better, maybe with regard to your parenting or with regard to your schoolwork or your job, or maybe there's some secret sin that you, I wish I could give up the bottle, or I wish I could give up pornography, or I wish I could give up White Zinfandel, $1.25 a bottle. Something. Now, who are you going to tell about that? Are you going to go tell your former football coach who you tell him, I just can't quit this. I keep trying over and over. And he's going to look at you and go, tell you what to do. Quit it. Just stop. Well, no, you're going to say, okay, thank you, good Goodbye, the end. Our conversation is over. We can't ever talk ever again about any of this because you don't understand. But can you imagine Jesus saying to you, I understand understand about what you're afraid about. I understand that you're seeing things that terrify you and you are wondering why God's not doing something about it. And you're having to, to kind of hover in this uncertain area. I've done that. I understand. Atticus Finch in To Kill a Mockingbird tells Scout, first of all, Scout, if you can learn a simple trick, you can get along better with all kinds of folks. You see, you never really understand a person until you consider things from his point of view, until you climb in his skin and walk around in it. Your Savior says, I understand 
He's climbed into our skin. He's walked around in it. He's given us, therefore, a model as well. When you think about all the dissension culturally right now, political, racial, economic, one massive oversight, seems to me, is the inability of people to get into the other person's skin. The inability of the majority to try to feel like what it's like to be a minority. The inability of the poor to get in the minds of the rich, or the rich to get in the minds of the poor, or the Democrats to get in the minds of the Republicans if they have them, and the Republicans to get in the... Did you hear that? In the minds of the Democrats if they have them. I don't have a lot of hope here on the political front. But our Savior says, I understand, and we've got to be a people who also understand that the story must expand in our lives as we consider this Jesus who's sympathetic to us and therefore gives us someone to come to, but also a resource for being sympathetic to others. But it's not just sympathy that he offers, but it's strength as well. When we're considering him, fixing our eyes on Jesus, our thoughts on this Jesus, who's this high priest that we confess, he's very sympathetic to us. He says, I understand. He's down in the mud and the blood and the confusion with us, but also... We're told this, he shared in our humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. There's a strength combined to his sympathy. If it's just sympathetic, Jesus would just be kind of doing a lot of hand-wringing, looking on and going, oh, so bad. Just, uh, I don't, what am I going to do? But he's not a waifish figure, you see. He can do things. He has power. And one of the things we're told that he's done is he's entered into an MMA fight with death. A cage match. Okay. He wrestled with him. I had a, I had a teacher in the eighth grade who made lots of puns. He had been a state champion wrestler, a collegiate wrestler. He led teams to many state championships. And he always would tell us, I think he's told every class about this, about the time he wrestled a bear. And he won. Barely. (laughs) So he showed us video of this, of him in the 1970s with a flannel shirt on and hair covering his ears, and his wrestling stance in a ring at a state fair somewhere in Tennessee, and him shooting in on a bear. Now, the bear, you see, he was still a bear, huge, powerful, but it was declawed and defanged. It's still powerful and quite a feat to beat a bear, barely. But he was defanged. He was declawed. That means he had no teeth and he had no scrapers. And that's what the scriptures tell us Jesus has done when he got in the match with the devil who holds the power of death. He said, I'm going to look this thing face to face, right in the eyes. And I'm going to suffer death and therefore make death die. And I'm going to get up and therefore transform death forever and ever and ever. The Apostle Paul says... Not that he defanged it, but he took its stinger out. 
Where, O death, is thy victory? Where, O death, is thy sting? See, formerly that was the thing you had to fear because it meant that every time someone is born, a clock starts ticking. Can you imagine if you were aware of it all the time, the metronome of your life? You've got a certain amount of seconds on this earth, you know, millions of them, but still, they're getting eaten up. They're getting eaten up. And if you could hear it, a clock, a clock. You're like, give me, give me some Prozac. Quick! But Jesus defanged it, and he declawed it. You'll still have to wrestle the bear. He just says he's liberated us from the terror of it. People will still die. We'll die. Some of us will die if he doesn't come back first. But he's transformed it forever, you see. He's taken the sting away from it by feeling all the sting himself, by taking the claws into his own flesh and taking the teeth of death onto himself so that now for everyone who's in him, it's a portal into his paradise. It's a passageway into his welcome. Jesus has this phenomenal kind of power so that he can actually help you. And he means to help you in the ways you most need it. I was watching this show the other day called The Middle. I had never seen it before. It was a Christmas episode. And it's this family. Okay. And they have a little son. And there's a little morose, eight-year-old, kind of odd kid. And it was Christmas time. And he was suddenly fixated on death. It's actually a perceptive fixation. His father, who like a lot of fathers on TV, is something of a buffoon, had no emotional intelligence. And he comes to his son, and he's trying to talk to him about why is he so thinking about death all the time. And he says, last year this time, I had a Pez dispenser, a Santa Claus Pez dispenser with candy in it. And then it was gone. And I can't find it. And I started thinking if my Pez dispenser could be gone, then you could be gone. Then mommy could be gone then I could be gone. We're all going to be gone. And his dad says this wise thing to him, son, that's why we have books and games and movies and Christmas presents to distract us so we don't have to think about death. That's why we have all that stuff, so we don't have to think about death. Okay. That is not helpful. It was supposed to be a joke. When he said it, it was funny to me. I delivered it wrong, so you didn't think it was funny. (laughs) But see, that's the best kind of thing you got to do with it. Because it is a reality that everybody knows about, and it rears its head. The terror of it rears its head. Because it's a real terror, and it's a real loss. It's hard to bear. But see, here's what happens. If you start... Well, if you don't think about Jesus as someone who frees you and liberates you from death and transforms the way you think about it, then your life gets to be very cramped. A woman said to a hunting instructor back in the 70s, I can't remember his name, her son was going to go with him to learn about the outdoors and hunting and stuff, and she says, can you guarantee the safety of my son? And he answered her in the voice, I imagine, no, ma'am, I cannot. But I make you this guarantee. 
If you succeed in protecting your son, I guarantee you the death of his soul. Merry Christmas. If you succeed in protecting your son, I guarantee you the death of his soul. You see, your life starts to get shriveled up. When, like a lot of good middle class people, when you're good and afraid of death, you know what your preoccupation turns to? Keeping everybody safe. Or nutrition. Or exercise all the time. These things are all good. Don't write me a letter. Exercise and eat nutrition. Don't eat at McDonald's. I don't eat at McDonald's. and I, I mean, I know you don't believe me, but I don't. But you see, your life becomes very shrunk down. It's the management of risk all the time. And Jesus means for you to, as Francis Shaver would say, possess your possessions. He means for you to know a certain liberation from fear, to live with courage, to live taking risks, to live knowing that not a hair can fall from your head apart from the will of your Father in heaven. You don't have to be worried and nervous all the time. You're not going to outlive your time, and you're not going to underlive it. I had a professor at RTS Orlando who made national news, not by his ministry, but by his death. He was preaching. He played basketball for Coach Wooden in the 50s at UCLA. And he was preaching in the pulpit and he said, quoting John Wesley or someone, I'm immortal, I'm invincible until the Lord calls me home. And then he died right there on the stage. But it's true. And if you can grasp it, that your life's in his hands and the sympathetic high priest is strong and he's defanged and he's declawed death and some of the terror of it gets taken away and you don't have to live so much just for your own safety and the safety of the people around you. Your life doesn't have to be holding on so tight in such a cramped way. It also, your life doesn't have to become such a closed system. We're living in a moment right now where it's incredibly easy and extraordinarily plausible to envision your life and as you go forward as something that God's not really intricately involved in. Lots of smart people don't think that's even possible to imagine an afterlife or God involved in this life. And it becomes easier and easier as you hear this refrain. But if your life becomes this closed system, another thing happens. You... For instance, some of you are going to live way too much in the past. Because the future's over. There is no future. What's the future? What can we hope for in the future? What good can come in the future? There's so much death. There's so much trouble. There's so much anguish. So you venerate the past. Which is a lie, you know. The past wasn't, I mean, it's a, especially a conservative lie. The past was better? I don't know. All ages are equally good and bad. Well, who knows? That, that may not be a true statement. But it is untrue that when you sit here today and think about how much better the past was, so often you're forgetting some major things and you're enhancing some others. Some of you are reliving and re-nursing old wounds because you've got no future, you've got no belief in Jesus' stranglehold on death and resurrection that comes out of that. So you keep re-nursing these wounds from the past. But he means for you to be free the strength and the sympathy. And I know I've said this before. I'm going to keep saying it because I want it to catch hold and I don't hear other Christian people saying it. Christians don't have to have a bucket list. You know? YOLO. But for a long time you live only once. Christians, 
I saw this really tragic thing, a woman terminally ill with lung disease, weeping on her bedside, which is completely understandable, saying, my biggest fear is not my death, but that my children will not have the opportunity to see the world like I didn't have the opportunity. That was her biggest fear. Now, that's tragic. It's tragic because of her pain. It's tragic because of her facing death. It's also tragic because her thought world was so small. All she could hope for her children is that they would see the world? Well, that's a closed thought. It's a thought that says, when I die, that's it. There's nothing more. We believe in the world to come that is subject to Jesus who has already defeated death and says, if you're adhered to me, if you trust me, you defeat it too. And you get to live in a new world. Do you think there will be time to go skydiving? To ride on a bull named Fu Manchu in the new heavens and the new earth? Sure! That's a country song if you haven't gotten cultured yet. There will be time. So you, do things. God gives you gifts on the earth. Do them. Great. Don't think you've got to get everything now. Fix your thoughts on Jesus. Realize you may get a better dream house in the next world than this one. You might have to be content for a shabby house now. You might not get to see the world now, but you'll get to see it. And things that this earth, as we know it, cannot now afford. Leslie Newbigin was asked this question. He was a missionary to India. Do you find yourself pessimistic or optimistic about the spread of the gospel in India? And he said, I, I believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, so the question doesn't even occur. See, the resurrection of Christ from the dead is a fact to be believed or to be disbelieved. And that's what I believe. And see, when you start to imagine this Jesus and fix your thoughts in Him, you go back not to your own conversion day, whether or not you can feel something enough for Jesus. You go back to this. Did this Jesus really suffer death and taste it for everyone and then get up? He says He did. Lots of witnesses said they did. Lots of formerly frightened people got really bold and said he did. And were willing to give up their lives because they thought this meant something. Now we have a king. And though the clock is ticking, we're going to pass through death because of this king. Into a new world. Studs Terkel, who's a great oral historian, you may have heard of him, told lots of great stories. I heard him recently. Such a compelling storyteller. He's documented the Great Depression, the World War II people in their workaday jobs and he was being interviewed at the University of California Berkeley and he started off the conversation by saying this because he had just written a book called Will the Circle Be Unbroken? Stories about faith and life and the afterlife. And he said, I just want you to know everyone that I'm an agnostic which is basically just a cowardly atheist. That's what he said. I'm an agnostic which is a cowardly atheist. And he says, I we, none of us can tell what's going to happen in the afterlife. Okay, I can't make book on that. I can't bet on that and win. There's no way to know. So if people get some kind of solace from this, you know, like a placebo effect, great. He didn't say placebo effect, I did. But, you know, there's a kind of humility that that sounds like. And he's such a gracious and winsome person. And it sounds so humble to say, how can we know what happens after? How can we know? But what you don't realize when you hear it and you're not fixing your mind on Jesus, is that this Jesus has actually said, you can know, because I 
wrestled death and defanged it and declawed it. And I came up on the other side. And I said, if you believe in me, you will never see death. I'm the first fruits. And there's a big harvest of resurrected people coming after me who are going to live in this world to come where I make all things new. And so to say, we can't really know, sounds humble, but it's the ultimate act of arrogance and defiance. It says Jesus doesn't know what he's talking about. He can't be trusted. He cannot be believed. This Jesus that we're to think of is sympathetic and he's strong. And I close with this, a parting speech from Lieutenant Colonel Howmore from the movie. We were soldiers. This is in November of 1965 and he's addressing his unit with their families behind him in the grandstand. And this is right on the eve of the first clash of U.S. forces with the People's Army of Vietnam, which effectively engaged the United States in the Vietnam War. And Moore looks around at the crowd, at his men. He says, in the 7th Cavalry, we've got a captain from Ukraine and another from Puerto Rico. We got Japanese, Chinese, blacks, Hispanics, Cherokee Indians, Jews, and Gentiles, all Americans. In this unit, some men may experience discrimination because of race or creed, but for you and me, now, all that is gone. We are moving into the valley of the shadow of death, where we will walk and watch the back of the man next to you, and he will watch yours. Where you will not care what color he is or what name he calls his God by. They say we are leaving home. I say we are going to what home was always meant to be. So let us understand the situation. We are going into battle against a tough and determined enemy. I can't promise you that I will bring you all home alive. But this I swear, before you and before Almighty God, that when we go into battle, I will be the first to put my foot on the field, and I will be the last to step off, and I will leave no one behind. Dead or alive, we will all come home together. So help me God. Your Savior. Fix your eyes on a Savior, sympathetic and strong, who says, I will be the first and I will be the last. And I will make sure that all my people get home, whether dead or alive. We will all be home together. Fix your thoughts on this Jesus. Fix your thoughts on him.